and welcome back to another edition of the Organist Encores with me, RHJ, at the microphone. The title of this show is Wet and Dry. Of course, when I say wet and dry, I'm not referring to sheets of abrasive paper, but of course, wet and dry acoustics. Fine acoustics can boost most instruments' sound quality or even smooth over characteristic tonal defects. Sometimes it's hard to put your finger exactly on what it is about such combinations of instrument and room that bind them into something very special. During the early days of recording technology, engineers struggled to get a balanced recording from most musical instruments, let alone pipe organs. In theatre recordings of pipe organs that could capture those rich sounds were still out of the question, what with such wide-ranging frequencies beyond the technology of the day. This is where studio environments came into their own, a place where sound could be managed. I'm rather partial to the up-close studio sound, but the organ and the player need to be a tight unit. Let's hear Jesse Crawford, the original pop star, playing his famed studio organ in the Paramount Building, New York, in 1929. This instrument was obviously specified for broadcast recording and, unlike most Wurlitzer organs, was totally finished. Crawford worked with famed voicer Dan Papp to get the balance just the way he wanted it. Thank you. 
Christopher Burr in residence at the original synthesizer hits factory of the day. That instrument is now in the care of Dick Taylor and is destined to sing out once again with its original specification. And with tonal work being carried out by Ed Stout, judging by the images that I've seen of ongoing work, it's going to be an immaculate installation. Some 30 years after Crawford's 78 RPM successes on the US's East Coast, another famous organ studio is knocking out million-dollar selling records on the West Coast. During the late 50s and early 60s, the dry sound was out of vogue with many record producers. Richard Vaughan of Hi-Fi Records fame wasn't adverse to adding hefty dollops of twangy reverb to some of George Wright's recordings during that same period. Some artists got off lucky, and at the same time, we got to hear that famous five-manual 21-rank studio instrument in its natural studio acoustic. Here is the amazingly talented Gordon Kibbe showing us another side of the famous organ that made hi-fi.
Now, is it possible that some installations get their sound purely from a particular style of playing, and without it would be unrecognisable despite the acoustics of the room? Let's put that theory to a quick test. Did you recognise the organ, the room, or both by association? That was, of course, Simon Gledhill bringing out the subtler side of the Blackpool Tower Wurlitzer. He was playing Crocus from his Shall We Dance album. To my ears, no matter who is playing, that sound is as recognisable and as solid as a piece of Blackpool rock. What do you think? Why not leave a comment on whichever platform you're listening to this on? I'd be interested to know. Okay, indulge me in a little track trickery. This next track is a hybrid of two tracks. It's the same organ, played in two different venues by two different artists, playing an identical arrangement, save for mm, some minute timing differences. See if you can hear where I've joined the two together. One clue would be to listen out for where one building's acoustic takes over from the other. At the end of the track, all will be revealed.
Did you get it? Not easy unless you've heard both tracks before. First off, we had David Gray playing part of an uncanny version of George Wright's arrangement of My Funny Valentine, played on the X-Fox San Francisco Wurlitzer, now in the El Capitan Theatre, LA. About halfway through, George took over and we hear the subtle effects of the Fox Theatre emerge and with it, to my ears, a completely different sounding instrument. Of course, those Fox instruments have a particular sound about them, due in part to the ranks and presence of those soaring high-pressure voices. But of course, that organ in that room was unmistakable, no matter who was playing. Listening to recordings of it in its second home, the Lanterman Residence, the instrument had retained many of its traits. George's recordings at the Fox were quite closely mic'd, with the organ sound being up front and the room being under greater control, whereas Everett Norse and Tiny James's later recordings captured the theatre's rolling acoustic and both sounded excellent to my ears and captured the magic of that organ and venue. Here's George Wright talking about the Fox sound during an interview in a radio programme that aired the night before the theatre closed for demolition. And another man who played at the Fox Theatre for many years was a true master of this unique craft. George Wright tells us some interesting facts about this instrument. I would say that the, the organ at the Fox is, is one of the best, not only because it is one of the largest, if not the largest, on the West Coast, but the fact that the acoustics of the building are so complementary to it. When a large organ like that is installed in any building, whether it be a, a public auditorium or a church or regardless of where, the building is part of the instrument. The acoustics uh, lend a certain something to the tone of the organ and the, t and the tones of the organ are uh, in, in return affected by the acoustics. Now many 4,000 plus seater theatres like the Paramount New York had big sounds and many like the Paramount had a certain articulation when blending out into the room. To my ears the 426 Wurlitzer in the Metropolitan Theatre in Boston did just that. Thank you. 
there <laughs> of Kenneth Lane, a.k.a. Ashley Miller, in a 1960 recording of Night and Day on Wurlitzer Opus 2101. Ashley could sit down at any console, and it wouldn't matter how the room sounded if it was dashed with Ashley. That instrument was vandalised in around 1973 during a rock concert at the venue. Those of you who listened to my previous show might remember hearing the Portland organ grinder Wurlitzer. Well, the console, including some ranks and parts from the Metropolitan Wurlitzer, were gravitationally pulled into the orbit of the gigantic grinder organ in 1974. Now, the Metropolitan Wurlitzer had a sister organ in the nearby similar-sized Brooklyn Paramount. Known as Public's four Wurlitzers, only two were built. These instruments were designed to produce the same kind of power heard in the Paramount New York, but with ten fewer ranks for less cost. The theatre had a lavish opening in 1928 and continued to operate as a theatre after Long Island University took over the building in 1950. In 1963, the auditorium opened as a basketball arena. The conversion maintained most of the interior decor, but with the seating gone and a polished floor added, the acoustic took off in all directions. Now, I've not heard the original sound of the theatre, but I imagine it was something akin to the Metropolitan. Let's hear the late great Dan Bellamy throw some jazz stabs out into that glorious upgraded acoustic.
Let's step down in organ size now, but increase the effect the room has on the instrument. When the Compton organ in the UK St John Vianney Church in Clayhall comes to mind, I think of purity, not because of the instrument's proximity to godliness, but to the heavenly acoustic. Surely an example of room size matters when it comes to a small organ. One and only Dudley Savage merging that 3-7 Compton plus Melatone with those wonderful ecclesiastic acoustics. Well, we started out with a sound that was so controlled, balanced and didn't put an acoustical foot wrong in any way, so it makes sense to go to the furthest end of the spectrum now with an acoustic so large and unshackled it boggles the mind. Combine that with the lofty placement of some high-pressure Barton pipework, Earthbound adjectives like colossal, gigantic, or Herculean don't come close to describing our final acoustic. The Barton organ sound that once rang around the now demolished Chicago Stadium had an acoustic that was said to be designed to condone noise. One thing is for sure, the combination of instrument and venue was spectacular. Let's end the show with the one and only Tom Hazelton demonstrating the instrument's stunning dynamic range.
When I hear a sound like that, I'm left grasping for words to describe it. Perhaps it's just best to let it be what it is and simply feel the experience. I remember the first time I heard that recording, it brought a few tears to my eyes. And uh, thanks to Lou Williams, who made the entire concert from which that track was taken available on his SoundCloud page. Like many irreplaceable venues and organ combinations that have long disappeared, that is surely one I wish I could have experienced in the flesh. You can expect a special episode from me in the future featuring that instrument, so keep your ears peeled. Well, whatever the acoustics are like where you are right now, I hope it's contributed in some way to your enjoyment of this program. Till next time, cheerio. Cheerio.